Okay, we're going to get started this evening. Uh, it's a joy to see you all here uh, tonight for prayer meeting. Man, it's a joy to be here for prayer meeting. <laughs> um, first of all, uh, thank you uh, for your prayers. As uh, you know, our family, man, for the last month and a half with illness has just been rough. <laughs> From COVID to fevers to head colds, man, and then moving. And so I wanted to say thank you for the prayers and then thank you for those of you who are able to help us move boxes and appliances and all that stuff. Everything, almost everything is in our new house. We don't know where it is in our new house, but it's in our new house. Um, so praise the Lord for that. And uh, But it's just a joy to be with you tonight. And uh, and be able to share with you God's Word. Uh, it's been a few weeks since we have um, had our last study in our series of Praying with Paul. And so let's just spend a few moments to wrap our mind around what we've been doing here on Wednesday nights. A little over a year ago we began our study uh, through the Gospel of Luke with the same mission that was expressed by Jesus' disciples in Luke 11, verse 1, which was, Lord, teach us to pray. Uh, we as believers, we should want to grow not only in our patterns of prayer, but grow in becoming people of prayer. Um, becoming people who live out the vitality and the importance and the centrality that prayer ought to have in our lives as followers of Jesus Christ. And so we put ourselves for almost a year under the discipleship of Jesus Christ in that regard through the Gospel of Luke. We put ourselves under Jesus, who is the premier person of prayer, a man who constantly lived in communion with his Father. And we learn that if prayer is so important for the sinless, spotless Son of God to live a life that honored his Father, then how much more important must prayer be for us? Well, our study in the Gospel of Luke has ended, but our mission to follow Christ's example and grow as people of prayer has not. And thus we've begun over the last few months a new study on Wednesday nights titled Praying with Paul, in which we seek to learn from the Apostle Paul's example how to pray according to God's will. See, throughout his New Testament letters, Paul repeatedly offered up prayers, that is, inspired prayers to God, thus giving us valuable insight in how, into uh, how to pray uh, according to God and what his desires are when it comes to our lives and to our own prayers. After all, 1 John 5.14 says that we ought to strive to pray in accordance with God's will. Well, throughout the New Testament, we see inspired prayers breathed out by the will of God through the Apostle Paul. And so if we want to grow in our knowledge of how to pray according to God's will, let's start by learning what God's will had Paul pray for throughout his inspired scriptures. And so, as we enter into Paul's prayer closet, and as we listen in on what he prays, we're learning as a church what to adore, what to appreciate, what to ask, what to admonish, and what to amen in our own prayers. And right now, we're in the middle of learning what to adore God for in prayer, what to simply praise God for because of who he is in and of himself, based on his character. The, this section of our study is taken from all the instances of God's prayer, uh, of Paul's prayers when he says, blessed be or glory be to God in his letters. In all of those instances, Paul is simply praising God for, who he, for, for his character. He's simply adoring God for who he is in and of himself. And so we should learn from Paul and apply these lessons to our own prayer lives. Uh, going through Paul's prayers chronologically, we've seen so far that we should adore God for being the God of all comfort, 
of all wonder, of all change, of all blessing, of all power, and of all provision. Well, tonight we're going to learn that we should adore God in prayer tonight as God's people because He is the God of all patience. And this comes from 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 17, in which Paul writes, To the King of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. So here Paul adores God for being the God of all patience. But before we explore this verse and its surrounding passage any further tonight, let's just ask the Lord to bless the teaching and the receiving of his word tonight. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this moment. Father, I thank you for the fellowship of your people. Father, I thank you for, most of all though, the fellowship that we have with you through your Son, Jesus Christ. We thank you that at this very moment we approach your throne and find it to be a throne of grace from which we receive mercy and grace given to us to help us in our times of need. And Father, we stand constantly in need, especially so when we seek to understand your word. We know that these are spiritual things that can only be received by those who are spiritual to those who have your Holy Spirit indwelling in them. And so, Father, we are in need of inspiration and understanding tonight. Father, I pray that you would help us understand what you have freely given to us in your word. Help us to understand these truths. Help them to change our hearts and minds so that we would grow to be people of prayer. And help us tonight, Father, to grow in our appreciation of who you are as being the God of all patience. Patience towards your people. Patience towards us at all times. May we praise you for that as we learn of your perfect patience tonight from your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now the heart of Paul's prayer of adoration is found right there in verse 17. When Paul writes to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. So there, in essence, Paul is calling on us to join him in an eternal pursuit and prayer of extolling and honoring and glorifying God. To God be honor and glory. That's the essence of his prayer. That's the essence of his prayer. But obviously, something motivates Paul to pray this here in 1 Timothy chapter 1. And so what is, ex- what is it exactly about God that causes Paul to adore him for all these things in verse 17? Well, using logic, the answer is found in the previous two verses. In fact, in fact it's, it's the whole flow of the passage, but just for tonight, we're going to be looking at verses 15 through 16. Here, Paul writes, "...this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance." That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason. That in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display His perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in Him for eternal life. What? (laughs) What? A sentence. John Newton, as he came to the end of his life, said to one of his lifelong friends as he was laying on his deathbed, my memory is nearly gone, 
But I still remember two things. That I am a great sinner. And that Christ is a great Savior. That confession is, or at least ought to be, at the heart of every true believer's testimony of salvation. I am a great sinner, but Christ is a greater Savior. And that's exactly what we see here with the Apostle Paul. He says, first, I'm a great sinner. That's in verse 15. Verse 15, Paul begins by saying in verse 15, this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. In other words, Paul is saying to those who have had their eyes open to the truth of who they are and who God is by the Spirit, then everybody who has had their eyes open ought to be able to fully get behind what I'm about to say. And here it is. First, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. He didn't come into this world to bring about societal change. He didn't come into this world to provide a good example by which for you to live by. He came into this world for this mission to save sinners. To save sinners. That is why He came. And this is true. Jesus Himself said, In Matthew 9.13, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Christ came into the world to save who? Sinners. That's why He came. That's why He came. And again, Jesus said in Luke 19.10, the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Jesus came not to save those who think they've got their lives all together, but they don't. He came to save those who know their lives are not together and are falling apart. Right? He came into the world to save sinners, to those who have recognized that they are living in rebellion against God. Living in spiritual idolatry and adultery. That is why Christ came you think yourself a good person tonight then why did christ come he came because you are not a good person only he is good and you are a sinner and he came to offer salvation to the lost he came into the world to save sinners and then paul says this So this is what you ought to be able to get behind fully if you understand God's grace and truth. You ought to be able to agree fully that Jesus Christ came to this world to save sinners and you ought to be able to agree with the second statement as well, of whom I am the foremost. You know, Paul just needs, you know, he needs his self-esteem built up. This is terrible, isn't it? Get him to a psychologist, man. I mean, this guy's just falling apart. No, actually, this guy is exactly where Every single one of us needs to be. Of who am I in the foremost? I think it's fascinating here that Paul doesn't say, of whom I was the foremost. He says, of whom I am the foremost. Paul is saying here, I am the greatest of sinners. Now, I need to be clear, this does not mean that objectively, Paul was currently sinning more than any other sinner on the face of the globe at that time. That's not what Paul is saying. We know that's not the case because he says elsewhere in his letters that he lived before God as much as he was able by his grace with a clear conscience. 
Acts 23.1, and also that others should imitate his general lifestyle and style of living, Philippians 3.17. So this doesn't mean that objectively Paul was sinning more than anyone else. But what this does mean is that subjectively Paul was the greatest sinner that he himself knew. And I think this is fascinating insight into the essential characteristic of true Christian maturity. Christian maturity is not a growth into greater self-esteem. Christian maturity is a growth into greater Christ-esteem. The longer you walk with Christ, you don't start thinking more highly of yourself. Believe it or not. The longer you walk with Christ, actually, you start thinking less highly of yourself than you did at first. In fact, the longer you walk with Christ, you just start thinking of yourself less, period. (laughs) And you start thinking of Christ a whole lot more. And that's exactly what we see here with the Apostle Paul, right? As Christ, by his overpowering grace, continually cleansed Paul from sin, Paul was seeing more and more the depths of his own depravity and sinfulness. If you've ever read Voyage of the Dawn Treader by C.S. Lewis, it's like when the lion Aslan peels back the dragon's skin from Eustace. Each time another layer is found, C.S. Lewis says, darker, deeper, and more painful than before. So that even as Eustace in that story is becoming more and more clean through the clawing axe of Aslan, he is at the same time becoming more and more aware of his continual need for cleansing. So it is as Christ sanctifies us in our Christian lives. As Christ is working away and shining His cleansing light of truth into one area of our life, when that happens, another area that needs to be cleansed and set apart from God suddenly springs up. And Paul, as he's growing in the knowledge of God, is also growing in the knowledge of himself. And he's continually realizing the depths of his own sinfulness. That he was a great sinner. In fact, he could not imagine a worse sinner than he And I know this is, if you've walked with God for any length of time, this is your testimony as well, right? When I was a child, I thought my problem with sin was a problem of my actions. Now I realize the problem of my sin is a problem of my heart and my affections. I am an idolater and adulterer in heart. Not just someone who makes mistakes on the outside. Paul was continually realizing the depth of his own sinfulness, that he was a great sinner, and he could not imagine a worse sinner than he. Paul was the greatest sinner that he knew. Guess what? That is a sign of maturity. (laughs) That is a sign of maturity. See, so often we're devastated when horrific sin comes to light or is brought to light in our lives, right? But guess what that process is called? Spiritual growth, right? When you're suddenly confronted with an ugly area of your life that needs to change, congratulations, you are finally at last seeing what God always saw in you. You're growing, and part of spiritual growth is coming to the point where you come to believe and declare with full conviction alongside John Newton and the Apostle Paul that I am a great sinner. I am. It's not just that I used to sin, it's that I'm still sinning day and night. 
as God continues to expose the deep-seated idolatries and adulteries in my heart, I can say without qualification, I am the chiefest of sinners, the worst sinner that I know. Can you say that tonight? See, that shows how much we need to grow in our maturity and understanding of ourselves. I am the chiefest of sinners, but glory of glories, that's only half the gospel, right? That's only half the gospel because though I am a great sinner, listen up, Christ is a great Savior. Verse 16, Paul says, but I received mercy for this reason. In other words, what's happening here? If you get into the mind of Paul, he's wrestling with something. He's wrestling with the reality that he is the greatest sinner that he knows. It's not just that he used to be the greatest sinner that he knows. It's that he currently is the greatest sinner that he knows. And he's a hot mess. That's what he's dealing with, right? Why am I the way I am? Almost Romans, right? Oh, wretched man that I am. Who is going to deliver me from the body of this death? I am just a piece of rotting carcass in the sight of God. Why am I like this? And so Paul is thinking here, okay, if I am the chiefest of sinners... Why did I receive mercy? I mean, why am I standing here tonight redeemed by the blood of the Lamb? Why did God save me? I mean, God could have chosen to save someone else who wouldn't give Him so much grief. He could have saved someone who wouldn't have struggled with their sanctification as much as I do. So why did God choose to save me? This rotten man who so deeply and daily and determinedly fails and falls and goes his own way, though I ought to know better. Why have I, of all men, received mercy? It's for this reason. (laughs) That in me, as the foremost, foremost sinner, Jesus Christ might display His perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in Him for eternal life. Wow! In other words, God is not denying here our total depravity and ongoing ineptitude. Right? I mean, he's like, yep, okay. You finally realize it, right? You're finally getting a glimpse of what I knew when I died for you on the cross. You're finally realizing your true state apart from me. But what God is saying here also is that He uses our failures and He uses our failings and fallings to display His perfect patience as an example to all who will ever believe in Him for eternal life. In other words, what Paul is saying is, God has saved me so that a message would be given. And that message is this. If Christ can save and sanctify such a deep-seated, struggling, failing sinner like me, then He can save and He can sanctify anyone. Anyone at all. All my failures, all my sins, all my struggles are designed to glorify and magnify the perfect patience of my Savior. Though I be faithless, He remains ever faithful. 
And though I be a great sinner, Christ is a greater Savior who has and is saving me greatly. And He will finish what He started. Just like 1 Thessalonians 5.23 says, He will not rest until He Himself has sanctified me completely and kept my whole spirit and soul and body blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus. It's just like the song that we sing. My sins, they are many, but His mercy is more. He will hold me fast, for He is the God of all patience. I'm a great sinner. That's the first part of your testimony. <laughs> your ongoing testimony. But Christ is a greater Savior. That's the second part of your ongoing testimony. It's in response to that truth, a truth which our own redeemed hearts tonight should resound with, that Paul then offers up this prayer of adoration in verse 17. To the King of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. And consider what he's saying here in context of what he's just talked about in terms of the perfect patience of Christ unto our sanctification, right? He says, to the King of the ages. In other words, here Paul is praising God, specifically the Son, for being sovereign forever. He's the King of all ages, right? And in context, Paul praises him for ruling over salvation. How? Patiently. He rules over salvation from beginning to end. Not only my redemption, but all redemptive history. He's the king of the ages. So the God of all patience is sovereign in his patience. He's sovereign. Second, he is immortal. He's immortal. In other words, God does not corrupt, decay, or fall apart. Neither does His patience. It is eternally vibrant and it never runs out. God is sovereign in His patience. He is immortal in His patience. Third, He is invisible. He is invisible. In other words, God is spirit and, the, and He works in divine and mysterious ways that are often beyond human understanding and even human perception. Just like the wind, as Jesus taught Nicodemus in John chapter 3, invisibly affects everything that it touches, God works in his people in the exact same way, invisibly and often imperceptibly. He just patiently, quietly, invisibly, internally works through his common means of grace. Until finally we look back at our lives and we say, wow, I am not what I want to be. But praise God, I am not what I used to be. And as Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15.10, by the grace of God, I am what I am, and His grace towards me is not in vain. A real change has taken place. A real miracle of God's divine patience. God is invisible and so is His patience towards us. God is sovereign in His patience. He's immortal in His patience. He's invisible in His patience. Finally, God is the only God, He says here. He's the only God. There's no one else worthy of worship, worthy of praise. He alone is God and there is no one like Him. He is one of a kind. He is incomparable. And so is His patience towards us. That's why Paul calls it perfect patience. Every other patience you've ever seen in your life is imperfect. Christ's is perfect towards you. 
God is sovereign in His patience, immortal in His patience, invisible in His patience, and incomparable in His patience. And this King of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, offers Himself to the greatest of sinners to be their infinitely greater Savior and display for all time His perfect patience in those who believe. He's the God of all patience. So why do we keep on failing and falling in our Christian lives? Why do we do that? It is to produce in us faith independence. And it is to produce for God glorious His patience is on display. He is the God of all patience. Therefore to Him... Paul writes, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. That's the purpose of our life. Both now and forevermore, we honor and glorify God with our lives. This is a heartbeat of every believer, and this ought to be the heartbeat of our prayer lives. Adoration should be right in the center of it. And adoration for God being the God of all patience towards us who are the chiefest of sinners ought to be right there too. Though I am a great sinner, Christ in His perfect patience is a greater Savior. And so this is what we ought to adore God for, for being the God of all patience, who in Christ patiently saves us and sanctifies us by His persistent grace for His everlasting glory. And so tonight, this is an invitation to join Paul in this prayer, to adore God for who He is, the God of all patience. And so that is what I wanted to share uh, with you all from 1 Timothy chapter 1. Praise the Lord that though we are great sinners, He is a greater Savior.